Good morning. Merry Christmas. It is good to see you all this morning. It is good to see all the guests. Thanks for joining us this morning. Will you join me in prayer as we turn our attention now to God's word? Will you bow your heads with me? God, we thank you and we praise you for this time of worship that we've had in your presence. Lord, we're grateful for these um, youth and children leading us to sing your praises this morning. And we want you to be exalted, Jesus, as king overall. And we ask and pray that you would be king of our lives, Lord Jesus, that you'd be at work today by your Holy Spirit to move in us to submit to you and follow you and and joyfully worship you as the King of Kings. Would you be at work then now? Would you bless this time? Would you be honored by this time as we look at your word today, Lord Jesus? We ask it in your name. All God's people said, amen. Amen. Well, the star of Bethlehem is one of the most well-known Christmas symbols. It features in nativity scenes and and Christmas cards and Christmas carols and Christmas ornaments. And we even (laughs) have used it several times in our uh, title slides for our Christmas sermon series, as you can see here. But the, the, the Bible... Uh, is not focused on the star's nature, but on its significance. Every year we we tell the story of the star of Bethlehem, but the the Bible is not so much interested in its nature, but in its significance. Not so much, was this a a comet? Was this a convergence of, of planets? Was this some supernatural thing? It's not concerned about that, but But what does it mean? The star signals a scepter, the coming of a a king, a savior king, the king of kings, born that man no more may die, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth, let earth receive her king. He rules with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness on the one hand. And the wonders of his love on the other. Christmas is about a king. And Christmas has been political from the beginning. I'm sure saying that makes some folks nervous. We may prefer to keep Christmas this sentimental, feel-good time of of year, this sentimental celebration, but there is just no escaping the interplay between King Jesus and the kings of the world. Even in the Christmas story, he is not called the king of kings for no reason. He is the ruler of the kings of the earth, Revelation 1.5. His life was bookended by rulers of the world who were trying to kill him. Where Herod failed, Pilate succeeded. Both of them by God's providence. Both of them in fulfillment of God's plan. From the very beginning of Jesus' earthly life, then, we see these two kingdoms in conflict, the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of man. And we're forced to choose sides. 
to decide how are we going to respond to the king of kings. Jesus is either your king or he's not. And if he's your king, he means to rule all of you. And if he's your king, you welcome his rule over all of your life because you know that he rules your life better than you would rule it for yourself. You welcome his rule because he's of the kind of king that he is and because his rule brings great joy. We see these things in our text today in Matthew chapter 2. So turn there in your Bibles if you haven't already. This is the story of the wise men being led by the star to come and worship Christ the King. And the scripture calls us to joyfully celebrate and serve the King of Kings. The proper response to King Jesus is worship, surrender, and the sacrificial offering of your entire lives to him. I'm going to first briefly summarize the, the, the history, and then I'll point out two truths that we see in this text that call for a response from us. So first, let's briefly look at this story. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in the days of Herod the king, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem looking for him, verse 1, and they asked, where is he who's been born the king of the Jews, verse 2. They knew he was king because they saw his star when it rose, and they came to worship him. Now, when Herod heard this, he was troubled along with all Jerusalem, verse 3. So he gathered some intelligence from the scribes and the chief priests, asking them where the Christ was to be born, verse 4. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, verse 5. They were quoting Micah 5, 2, showing where it said this in the scriptures. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared, verse 7, and then he lies to them. He says, go and search diligently for the child, and when you find him, bring me word, because I want to come and worship him too. Of course, in reality, Herod was planning to kill him, verse 16. Now, we know that, but they had no idea. They didn't know that. Then the wise men went on their way, and the star went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. This was supernatural. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Why is that? Why rejoice exceedingly with great joy over the star? Because they've almost reached their destination. It'd be like taking your family to Six Flags, right? Taking this trip to Six Flags and you see the sign that says one mile away. That's when the kids shout for joy. Not because of the sign, but because you're almost there. You're so close to your destination. They see this star and they're so close to beholding Jesus, the King of Kings, that they're overcome with joy. And when they go into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him, verse 11. Notice this is not the night when Jesus was born because he's in a house, not a stable, and he's a child, not a baby. Then they gave him their kingly gifts, opening their treasures. They offered him gold and frankincense and myrrh. And we don't know how many wise men there were, but tradition says there's three because of the three gifts. Then God warned them in a dream not to return to Herod, and so they go home by 
another way. Now, that's a brief summary, and I want to dig in a little bit deeper. Let's look at the first truth. There are two kingdoms in conflict. God holds the nations in derision for opposing his king. The two kingdoms are introduced in the first two verses. We see King Herod and King Jesus, the one born king of the Jews. When Herod heard about this king, he was troubled, it says in verse 3, but that that's not strong enough. The CSB gets a little closer saying he was deeply distressed. We could say that he was greatly agitated. We could even translate this terrified. The people were also troubled because when Herod was troubled, that meant trouble for them. And this is Herod the Great. And, and he was a, a brilliant, successful, ruthless, paranoid, murderous tyrant. Just to give you a sense of who he was, he knew that when he died, people were going to be happy about it. So what he did near his death is he, he gathered a bunch of prominent citizens and he had them executed just so that there would be weeping at the time of his own death. That's the kind of guy he was. Now he's called the Great because he carried out many large building projects, including the rebuilding of the temple. He was not Jewish, but he did try to appease them. He'd been king since 40 BC, appointed by the Romans. And by this time, the time of, of our Savior's birth, he had already survived decades of treachery and palace intrigues and plots against his life. But he was always able to outfox his enemies. He killed one of his wives, three of his sons, many other relatives and conspirators who tried to overthrow him. He regularly feared for his life and for his throne. So it's not at all surprising that when this new threat comes, he decides to handle it in the exact same way that he has all the others. So he hatches a plot to kill this child king. And notice he asks, where is the Christ to be born? Christ is the Messiah. Where is the Messiah supposed to be born? The possibility that this might be the Messiah doesn't phase him a bit, doesn't make him pause and, and consider maybe I shouldn't do this. He is cold and deceptive, pretending to want to worship the child, but really planning to kill him. We know the wise men are warned, and so they go home a different way. And when Herod figured out that he had been tricked, he became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. This is how we know Jesus was not a newborn, but somewhere between six and 20 months old. God also warned Joseph in a dream, saying, flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod's about to search for the child to destroy him. Verse 13. This is all par for the course for Herod. But I want you to notice God's sovereignty in all of this. Herod's attack led to the fulfillment of two Old Testament prophecies. Just like the decree of Caesar Augustus that brought Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem in the first place, fulfilling the prophecy about where the Messiah would be born, as we saw in Micah. The point is, is that God is sovereign over the nations. Isaiah 40, verses 15 and 17 says, Behold, the nations 
are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. All the nations are as nothing before him. The nations are a drop from a bucket to God. Here's a, here's a bucket. And I have a little pipette here. I don't know if you can see this little thing. All right, watch. You see it? That's it. Hold on, let me do it again. Okay, watch close. Here it comes. The nations of the world in the hand of God are God. The nations may seem too great for God's people, but they are as nothing to our God. God turns the hearts of kings wherever he wills. Proverbs 21.1 God will accomplish his kingdom plans and no one will stop him. And I think it's so good to be reminded of this truth in the midst of the tension in our nation, the conflict between these two kingdoms that we see being played out before our eyes even today. And to be reminded, this is our God. He is sovereign over the nations. Psalm 2 says, the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves against the Lord and his anointed, verses 1 and 2. But God laughs at their rebellion. The Lord holds them in derision. He speaks to them in wrath and warns them that his son, the king, will shatter them in pieces like a clay pot with a rod of iron. He says, now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, that's the kiss of fealty, of loyalty, to the king, lest you perish. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. We're going to see that in a minute, but first I want you to notice that God holds the nations in derision for opposing his king. God in his sovereignty laughs at the Herods of the world who rage against Christ and his rule. Even their wickedness only serves to help fulfill God's ultimate plans. And God continues to advance his kingdom. It's so encouraging as our nation continues to decline into sin and this conflict between the kingdoms continues. Take heart. Be encouraged. Your sovereign God sits on the throne. Jesus is reigning in his right hand. Caesars and presidents... The rulers of nations and empires are mere tools moved by the invisible hand of God to accomplish His will. And God will not allow His purposes to be thwarted. The truth is that God is in control of the world and all who oppose Him will be defeated. And one day we will stand triumphant in Jesus Christ. Herod stands in a long line of earthly rulers who opposed God and His people. Numerous world leaders have followed him in opposing Christ and his kingdom and his teaching and his authority and his people. 
the backdrop of the Christmas story is sin and murder and death and tyranny. It's this conflict of kingdoms. At Christmas time, we're not celebrating some sappy, sentimental notion of the basic goodness of humankind. It's all dark and depraved behind the scenes. We're celebrating the birth of a king that came and conquered his enemies. The birth of one who overthrew all the principalities and powers and even defeated death itself. And we have to learn that the king of kings has enemies, and that means we do too. The the wise men, Mary and Joseph, they're not spectators. They're participants in this drama. And one of the primary weapons is lies and deception. So be on guard. Herod took the news of the wise men seriously. You can tell because of what he was willing to do about it. Often unbelievers understand better than we do the implications of what it means to say Jesus is king. That's exactly what they don't like because it means there's a higher authority. Now, it should be said that Christians make the best citizens. We happily obey the authorities. We work hard. We seek the welfare of the nation. Yet we must obey God rather than men. It's not surprising that those in power would not like the idea of people having an allegiance greater than their allegiance to them. See, from the beginning, Jesus presented a a threat to the kings of the earth. His rule means that their rule is not absolute. They are accountable, and their authority is limited. So a rainbow Christmas tree on display in a Wheaton public school, that shouldn't surprise us. They know what they're about. Do we The conflict of kingdoms continues. This is not reason for us to despair, but to engage. Rather than simply complain, we must proclaim the gospel and make disciples, teaching them to obey King Jesus in every area of life. That's how the nation changes. God wants all people to be saved, and that includes kings, government leaders, It's why he has us pray for kings and all those who are in high positions, 1 Timothy 2.2, so that Christians would flourish, so that we could live a peaceful life, godly and dignified in every way, so that the gospel can go forth because God wants all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth, especially the truth that Jesus is Savior and Lord. As people give their allegiance to Christ the King and obey Him, the culture and the nation will change. And there's this push to take our faith indoors, to make it private, to keep it out of public life. And our answer has to be a polite but firm no. The star announced the scepter of a king who would rule over all. Jesus is the King of kings, and he means to shape how we live in every area of our life. When we're alone, having dinner with our family, hanging out with our friends, out running errands around town, going to work, and everything else that we do in life. And let that be true of our Christmas celebrations as well. Make it clear that Jesus is the King of kings. So on the one hand, God holds the nations in derision. He laughs at them. 
They're dropping the bucket to him. But on the other hand, God has a heart for the nations. And he draws them to his son, the king of kings. The wise men come as a first installment, giving a a picture that his kingdom is for all peoples. And that leads us to, to point two. The king of kings, God has a heart for the nations and he draws them to his king. The wise men come from the east to worship King Jesus, verse 2. They probably were not kings as the tradition holds, but as wise men, they would have had great influence in the royal court. They would have been like foreign dignitaries or, or nobles. Think about Daniel as the, the chief wise men of Babylon and the influence that he had. Okay, so they're not kings, but they're, they're high up and they're influential in the royal courts. They came from the east, possibly Arabia, Persia, or Babylon. All of those places had large Jewish populations, so they were probably familiar with the Hebrew scriptures and Old Testament uh, prophecy through their interactions with the Jews, including Balaam's prophecy. Balaam was a, a Gentile prophet that God, in his sovereignty, used to bless his people Israel three times. And the third time, his final prophecy, Balaam says this, I see him, but not Now, I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. Again, the star signals a scepter, a ruler, a king. And as the prophecy continues, this king is going to deliver God's people from their enemies. Numbers 24, 17 through 19. Now, we know from the Dead Sea Scrolls and other ancient documents that this was widely understood by the Jews as a messianic prophecy. Christians didn't just go back and look for a proof text. Jewish people themselves saw this as a prophecy about the Messiah, that a star would announce his coming. The wise men were Gentiles who knew and believed this prophecy of the king, and they were watching for the sign of his birth. Their coming with gifts also fulfills several prophecies in the Old Testament that the nations would come and worship the Messiah, like Isaiah 60, verses 1 through 6. It says, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. The wealth of nations shall come to you. They shall bring gold and frankincense, and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. It's a picture of God drawing the nations to the Messiah for worship. God has a heart for the nations, and he's drawing them to his son, the king. Now, that becomes explicit. What's what's implied here at the beginning of Matthew's gospel is explicit at the end. When Jesus says, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Now, understand that this mission is overwhelming. It is beyond us. It scares you. It scares you, doesn't it? To share the gospel with someone. Amen, somebody. It's why we don't do it. I get it. The mission is beyond you, but it's not beyond Jesus Christ. 
He says, all authority, all power has been given to me. So go, go in my name, go in my authority, my power, and I'm going to be with you always, even to the end of the age. Go make disciples of the nations. Don't be afraid. I'm with you. It's possible the wise men were familiar with other Old Testament prophecy as well, like that of Daniel, who had been exiled to Babylon. Like I said, he was chief among the wise men of Babylon, Daniel 2.48, and he had a vision of a son of man who would establish the kingdom of God most high, Daniel 7.13-28. Perhaps the wise men were wise enough to put two and two together, the prophecy of the star and Daniel's vision of this king who would be given dominion and glory that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And so the wise men came. Now, look, knowing what the Bible says is one thing. Acting on it is another thing. The scribes and the priests, the chief priests, they knew the scriptures about where the Messiah would be born. They could quote it chapter and verse to Herod. But they never bothered to travel the six miles to see if it was true. They didn't do anything about it. Herod was intimidated by Jesus. The priests were indifferent to Jesus. The wise men were intent on worshiping Jesus. What's your response? The wise men were not content to just study the star as scholars. They're not just recording data. Hey, when did it rise? How bright is it? Have you seen it move today? Wow, that's really interesting. You should write that down. Let's have a a little group and let's get together and study the star and what it's doing. No, they didn't travel hundreds of miles and spend months of time at great expense and risk to themselves out of curiosity. They were going to worship the king. They acted on God's revelation. Do we? Or are we just content to study, to be hearers of the word only? Are we scholars or disciples? Does God's revelation cause you to seek his son so you might worship him and serve him? There is such a danger in being able to give the right answers and say the right things, but never really trusting and following Jesus Christ. The star went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. You only bow down when you're in the presence of someone who's superior to yourself. That's what these eminent, influential men from other nations do. They rejoice exceedingly and they fall down in worship at the feet of the king. They're saying, I am low, you are high. They recognize his superior power and authority and majesty. The act of bowing down demonstrates their humble submission to the king of kings. 
That is how you come to Christ, by bowing down in submission to him as your king. Jesus will receive all who come to him in humble faith, whether high or low, rich or poor, shepherd or wise man. Now I need Steve and and Lydia to come up here and, and help me with a little demonstration. I made a special door for this sermon. Don't make fun of me for my poor carpentry skills. This door is about 40 inches high. Why don't you guys come right over on this side? And I asked if they would help me with a little demonstration. And I just want you to go through the door. Okay, Steve, but I want you to go first. Okay, brother? All right, so go, go on through the door. Great, thank you. Okay, Lydia, come through the door. Excellent. Thank you so much. All right, now, quick question for you, audience. All right. What did they have to do to go through the door? What? They had to duck. They had to bow down. They had to get low. Now, one more question for you. Who had an easier time doing it? (laughs) Yes, Lydia, absolutely. You guys can go sit down. Thank you so much. Would you give them a round of applause? Jesus is compared to a door in Scripture. Jesus says, I am the door of the sheep. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. John 10, 7, and 9. It's a door that will admit any who come. But it's a low door that all must bow to enter through. The proud and the stiff-necked who refuse to bow cannot get through the door. Those who are puffed up with pride cannot go through the door. They won't fit. That's why it helps to be like a child. Because they're small in stature physically, yes, but more importantly, they're humble. They don't think much of themselves. Jesus said, truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 18, 3. Jesus calls for childlike faith and humility. See, under normal circumstances, children don't worry uh, about paying the bills and about food and clothing and shelter. They simply trust that their parents are going to take care of those things. They, They live by faith instinctively. You see, if you want to enter the kingdom, you need humble faith. You have to admit that you're a sinner in need of a savior. You have to recognize that you were born on the wrong side of this conflict, born in sin, born in rebellion to this king. You have to admit that you're his enemy First, you must humble yourself. Then you have to trust him, Jesus, the Savior King, 
to do what you cannot. You have to believe in him to save you. You have to surrender to him as your king. You have to bow before him. There is no having Jesus Christ as your savior without also having Jesus Christ as your Lord, your king who rules your life. Now this posture of of humble submission that's needed to come to Jesus is the same humble submission needed for walking with Jesus. We continue to bow before the king in humble service, in faithful service to him. I want you to notice here, though, that Jesus is not asking us to do something that he was not willing to do himself. He models this for us, humbling himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in human likeness, being obedient to God the Father, even to the point of death, death on a cross, Philippians 2, 6 through 8. The one who created the world became a helpless baby. The one who spoke the world into existence became a baby who could only speak gibberish. Jesus humbles himself. The one who is worthy of all glory, all service, all honor, comes to earth not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. To save us. To enter his kingdom, we have to stoop. But he first stooped when he came for us. He calls us to follow his example and his character and his demeanor as we serve him. The wise men brought more than the gifts in their hands. They also offered themselves What we see is that when we truly see, when we recognize Jesus Christ is the King of Kings, we lay everything at his feet, everything that we hold dear, even our lives. Have you done that? Have you done that? Have you bowed in humble faith to Jesus? And are you walking in that same humble faith right now? Jesus is the shepherd king, it says in in verse 5. He lays down his life for the sheep. He gathers them into his fold. He gives them eternal life. His sheep hear his voice. They follow him, and Jesus will not lose a single one. However, on the other hand, those who are not part of his flock do not believe in him, and they oppose him. Question is, how will you respond to the king of kings? We see three responses to the king in this story, to King Jesus. Eagerness to find him, indifference to him, and hostility to him. What's your response? Are you like Herod, hostile to Jesus? Are you like the religious leaders? You know about Jesus. Maybe you've known about Jesus all your life. You know about him, but you don't care. You don't care about him, and you're not following him. Or are you like the wise men who learn about the king of kings, who seek him out and joyfully worship and serve him? 
And you can expect these two things. These two things are going to run hand in hand, side by side, opposition to Christ and his kingdom, this conflict, and obedience to Christ the king. This joyful worship of all the king's subjects are going to run side by side. And the more faithfully that we serve and worship the king, the more intensely we are going to suffer for the king. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 2 Timothy 3.12. By our worship, we are exalting the rightful king and inviting the world's anger. That has been true from the very first Christmas. Yet our God is sovereign over all. Amen? So let your Christmas celebration send a clear message. Jesus Christ is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He's your king. You're his subject. Serve him faithfully. Be willing to suffer for his sake. And do everything you can to spread his kingdom. Jesus is the king of all the earth, and we want him to receive the worship that he's due. Amen? As the song said, he will have the praise. Let's show by our joy that he's worthy. That's what Christmas is about. Let earth receive her king. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you were born a baby and yet a king. You are the king of kings, king over all the earth. And as you led the wise men to worship you, we ask and pray that you would lead us by the Holy Spirit to bow our hearts in humble faith and offer you our lives in faithful service. We ask this and we pray this in your name, Jesus, our king. And all God's people said, amen.